I wonder how many of you have heard the name Jordan Peterson. He is a uh, Canadian professor and a psychologist who has achieved a sort of unexpected celebrity. And I say unexpected celebrity because he isn't a performer, he isn't a politician, you won't see him at movie premieres or fashion shows. He writes dense books, but he became prominent a few years ago when he confronted a hostile interviewer on Canadian TV who was trying to take him to task for his opposition to a law that would make using transgender pronouns uh, something that you couldn't avoid within the Canadian school system. Now, Peterson has gone on from that interview to write several popular books, and in these popular books, he isn't afraid to tell you, and by you, I mostly mean men. That's really kind of to the audience that he is directed towards. He's not afraid to tell you what to do. In fact, his runaway bestseller, 12 Rules for Life, is essentially a modern book of law. Do this and live, he tells a generation of men who have essentially given up. Peterson starts with relatively simple things. His first rule is to stand up straight. He goes on and he says, you need to stop doing what you know is wrong. His last rule is to tell the truth. These are very simple things, aren't they? Simple ways to make sense out of your life. Now, Peterson is among a growing group of writers and social media stars who are making a name for themselves by talking about discipline and structure and rules for life. And I'm not here to bag on that. In fact, there is much to be admired and appreciated about their work. I think we would all be better off if we would cut back on our calories, if we would put our phones down, if we would actually learn how to engage in deep and meaningful conversation with our family and friends. But here's what I worry about. I worry that when we get to passages like Hebrews 13, which seems to be a list of random rules, I worry that we're going to treat those rules like we might treat Jordan Peterson's rules. Maybe my life will be better if I put these rules on a sheet of paper and stick them to my bathroom mirror and attempt to follow them every day. Maybe my society and my culture will flourish if we would all be better together. Friends, we cannot reduce the Bible to a handbook of personal morality. Instead, in these final verses of Hebrews 13, our preacher is simply asking us to live in light of everything he has just told us. Because... Jesus is better, this is what your life needs to look like. This morning, I want you to see something hard about that life. We want rules that will lead to our flourishing. But I think that what we find in Hebrews chapter 13 are rules that lead to our sacrifice. In fact, in these verses, our preacher is calling us to sacrifice. 
And when we do it, it might not seem like our life is getting a lot better. In fact, it might feel like death. Death to ourselves as we seek to follow the God who died for us. There are three, I think, overarching sacrifices in this text. The first one, verses 1 through 3, require a sacrifice of our time and our resources. We begin in verse 1 with a simple exhortation for brotherly love to continue. Our preacher is building on previous statements back in chapter 2 and chapter 12 about the nature of our relationships as brothers and sisters in Christ, as sons and daughters of God. He says, because you have been brought into this new family, make sure that you continue to love one another. Now, this isn't an appeal to an emotion. Instead, it is a direction that is supposed to lead to tangible behaviors. Biblical love requires real sacrifice. Sometimes in our reading of the law, when we get to Matthew chapter 22, where we hear Jesus' words to love our neighbors as ourselves, I use the phrase that I picked up from Tim Keller, that we need to love one another with the same speed, the same resources, and the same interest with which we would meet our own needs. And that tells you how hard it is to love one another. That's a sacrifice of our time. It's a sacrifice of our resources to love those who sometimes are unlovely, to love those who sometimes rub up against us in the wrong way, to go out of our way to show them that they belong to us and we belong to them. Love one another. In verse 2, the preacher gets specific and he tells the congregation to be hospitable. Now, many of you have been so hospitable to Sarah and me, and man, we have enjoyed some amazing dinners at your homes. And Sarah and I like to be hospitable. We like to have people over to our house But folks, this is not an appeal to practice Texas-sized hospitality. Instead, he wants people to go out of their way to feed and house strangers. That's a hard one. Our homes are our domains. This is where we can let our hair down. This is where we don't have to always be on guard. To invite a stranger into my own home? You see, in the ancient world, there was no such thing as a Marriott. There was no such thing as a Hilton. Instead, the inns of an ancient uh, Greco-Roman world were, were often places of ill repute, often places of danger for travelers. So our preacher reminds the congregation, you need to have an open door policy. Friends, what do you need to sacrifice in order to arrange your lives and your home so that you can provide hospitality to strangers? Who knows? You might even host a supernatural guest or two. 
In addition to welcoming people in, our preacher wants to pursue those who are out. In verse 3, he tells us to remember those who are in prison and to sacrifice, to essentially act as if you are in prison with them. Now, I'll admit, it is easy to justify forgetting people who are in prison. After all, most of them did something wrong to land there to begin with. Why do I have to be concerned about their well-being? Some of you know that I have a dear friend in jail right now. He's a Christian who committed a heinous, heinous crime. And I sometimes cringe when he calls. It's hard to be his friend right now. But he's part of the body of Christ. And I have a responsibility to him. In the case of Hebrews 13, the people that are in prison are probably not there because of terrible, immoral things that they have done. They're probably there because they're suffering persecution. You notice here in verse 3 that our preacher pairs the prisoners with this general category of those who are being mistreated. But the point still remains. When one part of the body suffers, we all suffer. We all owe one another a real sacrifice of time and resources. The next sacrifice, I think, is a sacrifice of personal choice and freedom. If the first sacrifice was a tangible sacrifice of time and resources, this is more of an overarching sacrifice of personal choice and freedoms. And we begin in verse 4 with marriage. For all of the joys and all of the delights that we can have in our marriages, we have to also remember that choosing to marry means that you lay down your rights. You lay down your freedoms. Christian marriage revolutionized Greco-Roman society. In Greco-Roman society, husbands and fathers had life and death control over everyone in their household. They were encouraged to pursue prostitutes and mistresses and even homosexual lovers. Marriage was simply a social contract that ensured that progeny would be legitimate, that ensured that titles and lands would be passed down from one generation to another generation. Christianity turned it all upside down. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 6 says, not only do you not have control over everyone in your households, husbands and fathers, you actually owe your wife your own body. She gets to control it. And you control her. There is a mutuality that has been introduced that was nowhere near that in society. Jesus in Matthew chapter 5 says it's not okay to go out and pursue these immoral relationships. In fact, even to look at a woman with lust is adultery. Rather than a pure or mere social construct, 
a contract that will allow property and children to be passed from one generation to the next. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5 that marriage is actually a picture of the relationship that Jesus has with us. This is why it must be kept pure. Well, friends, I admit it is hard to honor marriage to keep the marriage bed undefiled when the attitude of the world around us pushes back against God's design. After the Supreme Court's decision to legalize same-sex marriage, marriage is being redefined in ways that aren't just contrary to Scripture. They're a violation of nature. And yet, you and I are pressured Sometimes legally, sometimes culturally, sometimes relationally, to approve of what cannot be approved. More and more of us are being put into situations every year where our friendships, our family relationships, some of you, even your jobs are being threatened unless you acquiesce. But I want you to notice that this text isn't focused on what's going on out in the world. The preacher is provoking us to consider sexual immorality in the church. Friends, porn use is rampant in our churches. It's defiling many of our beds. Sex before marriage, sex outside of a marriage relationship, extramarital affairs. This is a sad reality that our pastors and our elders have to confront on a regular basis, even here at Redeemer. Recently, because of events at our church, I've even had to begin addressing marital rape in my premarital counseling sessions. Warning men against abusing their wives in their own homes. The Bible calls you to lay down your life for your spouse. To sacrifice your own desires. To put their needs before your own. That's the key to fidelity. That's the key to joy. And friends, I hate that I have to do this, but I also have to pause and say this. That in the last six years at Redeemer, we have had to discipline a number of men for abusing their wives. So men, don't you dare use this language of sacrifice to guilt and shame the women in your life. Instead, bow the knee. Confess your sins to Jesus. Ask for his forgiveness for the ways that you are sinning against your family and against your God. We are called to sacrifice in our marriages. We're also called to sacrifice with regard to our money in verse 5. Listen to how one author puts this. The reality is that there will always be rich Christians and poor Christians. 
The rich cannot claim some sort of divine favor or special blessing from God, and the poor should not see their circumstances as some sort of divine punishment. Indeed, both rich and poor, he says, struggle with the love of money. The rich have the burdens and worry of wealth, and they fear losing it, while the poor foolishly foolishly think their problems would be solved if only they had more money. How do you free yourself from the love of money? Sacrifice. You sacrifice by creating a need in your life that only God can fill, by giving away your resources that you rely on. But that's not the only thing. This isn't a tithing sermon. What I would also ask you to consider is how do you refuse to live in the consumption mindset that is our culture, that dominates our culture, that we want enough money to have enough experiences and enough wealth to have enough good things and toys to make our life worthwhile. Friends, choose to live according to God's provision. Choose and reorganize your lives so that there are times and places in your life where you must rely on God to come through. Don't purely spend your time striving like all of your neighbors, like all of your friends strive to show up one another, to show how well you can do. Let me ask you, if you were to say, this is a rule that I live by, would your family and friends actually believe you? Would they look at your purchases? Would they look at the way that you spend your wealth? Would they look at the way you spend your time? Do you live according to this promise of verse 5? When Jesus says, I will never leave you or forsake you, or do you, or does your lifestyle, do your work habits testify against you? The last sacrifice of personal choice and freedoms comes in verses 7 and 17. Look at verse 7 with me. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their life and imitate their faith. And flip to verse 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. A preacher pairs submission to Christ-like imitation. He says, look at the godly examples that our leaders are supposed to demonstrate. Verse 7, those are the people that you're supposed to submit to. Verse 17, yield to them and submit to their authority over you in the church. This verb in verse 17, keeping watch over you, actually refers to losing sleep. The elders of this ancient church have been losing sleep because like faithful soldiers who are standing guard, they're keeping watch over the congregation they are called to serve. 
Friends, I know that our elders at Redeemer have both figuratively and literally lost sleep as they have cared for this congregation. Doesn't mean that we always do it right, but of course that's not the reason you obey. You don't only submit when you agree. As members, you take vows to submit, especially for those moments that you disagree. Because by that vow, you profess to God that you believe He exercises His own authority in the church through the men that you call to serve you as pastors and elders. Friends, the hard thing about many of the good self-help books that are available today is they are just as easy to put down as they were to pick up. In fact, there's no power inherent in their rules that enable you to obey them. There's no guarantee of success. And if you are diligent to follow them but you fail... What happens on the other side is often a greater degree of frustration and resignation than you had to begin with. Not so for the Christian. Even though the law of God has no power inherent in it that enables us to obey it, there is a sacrifice that does empower us. We sacrifice We obey because of Christ's sacrifice for us. This is the third sacrifice that I want you to see. Look at verses 12 and 13. So Jesus also suffered outside the camp in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. As Christians, you and I are called to pour out our lives as a sacrifice of praise in response to the sacrifice of Jesus for us. Now bear with me for a second. The fancy way to understand this is that the imperatives, the commands that we've just read through here in Hebrews chapter 13, the imperatives flow from the indicative. The indicative are all of the promises, the reality that has been ushered into our lives by the work of Jesus on the cross. We believe the gospel, and then we respond out of gratitude by obeying the law. If you get this distinction wrong, if you get this order wrong, you will confuse the law and the gospel and you will turn Christianity into mere legalism. The imperatives, the commands that we've just reviewed, they grow out of 12 chapters of indicatives. And also two specific promises here in Hebrews chapter 13. Look at verse 5. I will never leave you nor forsake you. And verse 12. Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. 
Folks, the promise of God's unfailing presence and care gives you the power to obey the commands that he gives us here. Through Jesus, you are now sanctified, he says in verse 12. You have been set apart. You have been cleansed of sin. And that means that when you fail, instead of throwing the book across the room, you merely repent. And then you start again, believing that the power and the position already belong to you by grace, knowing that God is at work and He will conform you into the image of Christ. The preacher tells us in verse 6 that the Lord is your helper. Friends, may that be the confession of faith that is the fruit of your lips by which you acknowledge His name and live boldly for His glory this week. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would use this law as a holy guide and that you would use the work of Jesus Christ mediated to us by the power of the Holy Spirit as wind in our sails to do the things that you call us to do. We acknowledge that in and of ourselves we have no power to obey. But it's only because Jesus has been at work for us that we can now, with sometimes trembling steps, push out with gladness, with hope, with confidence that you will conclude and finish what you have begun in us. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.